Today, we're going to talk about how to be rich. All right, you came for a good week. We're going to talk about how to be rich. And the main idea comes from a verse in the Bible that talks about being rich. And Paul, the apostle, is talking to Timothy, and he says this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world to not be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us, uh, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And here's the key verse. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, Jesus' followers are commanded to be rich in love and in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And there's a lot of conversation in this country about how to do that. Uh, There's a lot of conversation about the problems we're having in this country. Uh, There's a lot of talk about what we should do, what we shouldn't do. I I think that many of those conversations are interesting, and we all have an opinion about them and how it should happen. And as a church... We want to commit ourselves to not just talking about the problems, uh, but we want to be the solution to those problems. We have an opportunity collectively to be the solution. But But in order to do that, we actually have to begin with a problem. Now, in my house, we have bread. I know we eat carbs, but we have them. I know, I know it's, you know, in, in West LA, you know, you never know who eats a carbohydrate, but like we do and we have bread and sometimes we don't consume the bread fast enough. And what happens to bread when you don't consume it fast enough? That's right. Mumbles. It gets moldy. It gets moldy. Our family didn't consume it fast enough and we let it sit too long. And oftentimes when we don't eat it fast enough, it's gross and it's no good to anybody. And James, we're going to talk about James, James, the brother of Jesus he does something really interesting. He takes us all out to the woodshed. And regardless of our religious beliefs, everybody today needs to put their big boy, big boy pants on and their big girl pants on because he is going to bring it. It's going to be a little rough. And it comes from James, the brother of Jesus. And in case you have to leave a little earlier or whatever, uh, it has a lot to do with this moldy bread that I just mentioned. And I have a slide and it goes like this. And it has, it has these little apostrophes next to it because I thought it rhymed and I thought it would be clever. It says, start giving while you're living because what you're holding is molding. Yes. Can everyone say that with me? Ready? Start giving what you're living. What you're holding is molding, just like the bread. If you don't eat the bread, it gets moldy. And James, the brother of Jesus, wrote something to first century Christians that was all about moldy bread. But it wasn't about bread. It was about money. And he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus rose from the dead. And he took over that church and he wrote a letter to some Christians in in, in Israel in that area. And in part of this letter, he addresses it directly to us. We read in James 5. If you need a Bible, we have some around. You can follow on your phones or you can follow on the screens. It says this, James 5, chapter 1. Now listen, you rich people. Uh Uh-oh. So now, uh, this is the point uh, where some of you are glad you're not rich because you say this doesn't have anything to do with you. And you, maybe you read stuff like this in the Bible. And this is the point where most of you just say, well, you know, I need to skip ahead to the next section because the author doesn't know anything about me and they know that I'm not rich. And I just need to read the next section. Uh, he's only talking to rich people. Well, the sometimes difficult to believe truth is that we are richer than we think we are. And the reason we don't think we're rich 
is because we don't feel like we're rich. And no matter how much money we make, we don't feel rich. The only time we feel rich is when we get our first paycheck from our first job. Does anyone remember their first job? Has anyone ever had a job? Okay, so does anyone? <laughs> so I had a first job. I worked for SNR Produce. Produce, if you're not familiar, is like vegetables and fruits. And I worked for SNR Produce, and I worked for a guy. SNR stood for Sam and Rick. And I worked for Rick. Sam was retired. And Rick was like, yeah, you can come work for me. Uh, and that's what he sounded like. And so he was like, come work for me. And so I'd pile the fruit up. And then there would be old people that would come in. And they would be like, you know, tell me where your fresh produce is. I'm like, well, you're about 100 years old. Let me grab it for you and I grab it. And so these were people hunting for good deals on produce. And I got my first paycheck. And it was $128. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I am rich. What am I going to do with all this money? And that was the first and last time I ever felt rich. Uh, the truth is we don't feel rich for a number of reasons. First, and this may be for many of you, you have no financial margin. And no matter how much money comes in, you have no margin. And no margin means no financial peace. And in fact, many of you are making more money than you ever thought you would make uh, and you still feel financial pressure, pressure that would not make any sense to anybody else around the world. And the other reason you don't feel rich or we don't feel rich is that we don't recognize that we are rich because, uh, because of what everyone else has. Uh, so we know what everyone else drives. We know what everyone else wears. We know what everyone else does on vacation. And Instagram is not a blessing. It's a curse in this area because not only does everybody look better than us on Instagram, their children look better than us on Instagram. And you look at this whole thing and you say, man, this is so much better than my little sucky life. And it's just terrible. Why can't I have more? Why can't I do more? Why can't I travel like that? And without meaning to do it, we fall into the comparison trap. And here's the reality. And you may not feel this. I don't know if it's necessary for you to feel this. It may not be even important for you to feel this. But the reality is, the starting point, the fact is, is that uh, what we have and what we will have uh, affects how we think about things. And so by international standards, if you have a household income of $33,000, you are in the 1% club. You're the top 1% wage earners in the entire world. And nobody ever cheers when I say that. It's not like a resounding thing like, yay, we're in the top, sweetheart, we're in the top 1%, babe. Yeah, time to party. Be why? Because we don't feel it. And here's the implications of this. And here's the, the goal of what I'm trying to say to you isn't to make you feel guilty. The goal is to help you feel responsible. There are millions of people in the world today who think you and I are filthy rich. Now, back to James. There's an assumption in first century uh, Judaism among, among people around the world and in Judaism that rich people were God's favorite people. And rich people were like just favored by God. And that's why they're rich. Sick people, meh, not so much. Poor people, he didn't care that much about. People thought that rich people were loved more by God. And so when Jesus came to earth, he set the record straight. He said, no, 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 no. We actually learn that rich people aren't more loved. Rich people are more responsible. Rich people are more accountable. Rich people are actually expected to do more, to love more, and to give more because they have been given more opportunity. And so James says this in James chapter 5, verse 1. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail 
because of the misery that is coming to you. Now, this is a shocker. He's saying, rich people, your future is not as secure as you think it is. And, and we're like, well, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, rich people, they, they tend to be, they have the most secure future. They got all the money. And you, and you can say, well, you know, that's why rich people don't, secu- don't worry about the future, right? That's why rich people don't worry about money, right? No. James was smart. He knew way more uh, than we think he knew. Um, the, and he knew that the more you have, the more you tend to worry. Because rich people often make the terrible mistake that most of us make. In fact, if you've made the stake, it might actually mean that you're rich. Rich people have a tendency to put their trust in their wealth instead of the one who richly provided it for them. And this is something that poor people never do. Poor people never put their trust in their riches or in their wealth because they don't have any. As soon as you begin to accumulate, as soon as I begin to accumulate and not meaning to, our trust tends to migrate from God and our trust migrates over to our stuff. It migrates over to our ability to save stuff, to hoard stuff, to plan for the future. And this is why it's strange because many of you have more than you ever thought you would and you worry about it more than you ever thought you would worry about it. And as if it's no matter how much you have, it's never enough because it never is enough. And there's the endless scenarios and there's the endless what ifs. There's like, what if, uh, what if the stock market does this? Or what if somebody gets sick? Or what if I get into an accident? Or what if my husband leaves me? Or what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And consequently, without meaning to, our trust migrates from our heavenly father to the source of, who is the source of all good things uh, to what we have and what we're able to do with what we have. And the statistics prove this, that the more we get, the more we have, the quicker our hands close around it. And James keeps going and he says this in verse two, he says, your wealth has rotted and the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. You have so many clothes that you can't even wear them, that bugs are eating your clothes. You have so much gold and silver stored up that it's beginning to corrode. You have so much hoarded and saved that even your gold and silver, it's depreciating. And James's point is simply this. You have held on to so much for yourself. Now it's not good for anything to anybody. And maybe you've had an experience like this. Uh, uh, I know I have in every single place in my life that I've ever lived. Um, I want you to think of that drawer in your house. Do you know the drawer where it's got the tape and the knife and the switchblade and the screws to fix your sunglasses, but you never fix them. You just bought new ones and this weird tape and some, maybe something, some magnets or what it's got everything. And you go real, I really need to clean that one out. I really need to clean that. Does anyone, is anyone aware of this one, of this one, you know, if you don't have it, God bless your heart. You can sit this illustration out. Uh, but I do. And my wife does too. And, uh, together we <laughs> have this. And a few years ago, uh, I, I cleaned out my dresser drawer. And when I cleaned it out, I found two, uh, old cell phones that I never use. But had I given those cell phones away years ago, somebody else could use them. Had I sold the cell phones uh, shortly after I got my new one I, uh, and had given away the money, somebody could have done something with that money. But I did the thing that we always do. 
I might need this someday. I might find a use for this someday. And now it's in a drawer. And now it's no good to anybody. And James reminds us that the issue is not how much comes in. The issue is how much stacks up. The issue is not how much we really can like bring in, how much blessing we have. What, it, what the problem is when we try to hold on to it and hoard it. And James, like a prosecuting attorney, he leans into us. He leans into his audience and he says this. He says, their corrosion will testify against you. The decay of all this stuff, the things we've accumulated, the things we've tried to hoard. You think you're doing a good thing by hoarding. You think you're doing a good thing by collecting all this stuff. He says a day will come when you think that uh, what you think will be a good day, the responsible thing that you've done by hoarding everything, that day will actually testify against you. People will look at all the stuff that you've hoarded, all the stuff that you have accumulated, and they won't think good things about you. They're actually going to think negative things about you. And then James gets really brutal here. And he goes right, he leans right into their culture and he says this, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Uh, (laughs) Now, this is common judgment of God language. Uh, And in ancient times, people were judged publicly, and they were often punished publicly, and often violently. And people had a tendency to judge what happened here on earth as it related to punishment, to what God might do in the future. And James is saying that God would punish them uh, for the way they had mishandled their stuff, uh, which ultimately was given as a provision from God. And James assumes that there is an accountability that everyone will have that everyone's been given who's been given anything by God. Why would he think that? Why would James think that we are accountable for the stuff that we've been given? Now, I'm, I'm certain, I, don't, I know there's some of you here today, you don't know what you believe about a personal God. And there's others of you who don't know what you think about a judgment, and maybe you think you're smarter than all of that. That's fine, I get that. You know, you, you, that's totally cool. But James... The person that wrote this, he actually believed that God was involved in the details of our life. And James believed that there was an afterlife. And James believed that we were all accountable for how we lived our life because of one simple thing. And it wasn't because of something that he was taught. And it wasn't because of something that he read. It was because of one simple incident in his life. He watched his brother Jesus be crucified. He knew where his brother Jesus was buried. And then he had a conversation with his brother Jesus after he rose from the dead. And when you have a conversation with someone who has come back from the dead, you will start to believe in the afterlife. And you will start to believe in eternal life. And so at the middle of James's life, James embraced the idea that Jesus wasn't just his brother, but Jesus was in fact God. And ultimately, James was killed. He was martyred. He was stoned to death because he wouldn't uh, leave this idea that his brother was God. He wouldn't deny it. And, um, and, And James had a conversation with his risen brother. And so he's really impacted by this idea of there being an afterlife. And he's saying that we're all going to be accountable to our heavenly father. Now, in case you've missed the point, 
James goes in again. He goes in like three more times. And he says this. He sells it straight up. He says, their corrosion will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. The implication is that the end is near. And the implication is this. Why hoard when time is short? And this is, a really inqu- uh, uh, this is a really important question for you. It's a very important question for me. And maybe you're a religious person and maybe you're not. Regardless, this is something we should all be wrestling with. Why would we hoard and why would we save for the future and act as if we're going to live forever? And here's what we all know. You are going to run out of time before you run out of stuff. You are probably going to run out of time before you run out of money. So let me, let me talk about it this way. Have you ever been a part of cleaning someone's house who had passed away? Maybe a grandparent, maybe like an aunt or an uncle, or maybe a a mother or father, or maybe they downsized, or maybe they moved to a nursing home. And after this person passed away, or after they moved out of the place, you had the responsibility of going into that place, that house, and you are responsible for all the stuff that they left behind, even though they don't live there anymore. And you walk around, and you think, what in the world What is all this stuff? They couldn't sit on all this furniture. They couldn't wear on all this clothes. They just accumulated all this stuff and it's all piled up. And you find yourself taking the things that they considered to be the most valuable, the most important in their life. And you're just chucking it. You're just chucking it. You're just tossing it. You're just getting rid of it. And suddenly in that moment, the stuff that was most important to them becomes an impediment. The stuff that was collected and held on to can sometimes speak negatively about them. And this is something for you to think about. This is something for me to think about our children. Or if we don't have children, we plan to have children. Or maybe our children are too young and you don't really think about this yet. Or maybe one day you'll have children. Or someday somebody is going to come after us. And somebody is going to tell a story about your stuff and how you manage your stuff. And here's what we know. Here's what we know. What we do now will determine the story they tell and the example they see. And this is what James is leaning into. He's like, come on, wealthy people. You've hoarded and you've held on to stuff. And it's slowly, it's so, you have so much stuff that it's losing value. I thought you were a smart, wealthy person. You're not increasing your value. It's actually decreasing in value. And it's not a testimony for you. It's a testimony against you. And so James, thinking that he's losing our attention, he jumps back in front of the camera and he goes in again. He says this. He says, look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers. And, you know, by the way, most of the wealthy people who are listening to this were either wealthy merchants or they were landowners. He says, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Now, wealthy landowners in this time, we're often criticized for taking advantage of people who had worked for them because those people had no legal recourse. And the landowner could offer a certain amount of money for a certain kind of work, and then the owner could, re- or the merchant or the landowner would reduce that amount that they were going to pay out for this reason or that reason, or they didn't do this or that. And the people on the receiving end had no legal recourse. And so they were constantly, what we see is rich people were constantly leveraging their wealth and their power to the detriment of people who had less power. And he says, the cries of the people without power are, they're crying out against you. And this, this should worry us a little bit. 
I mean, if you're a business owner or you do, or you manage employees or you do a business of any kind, or you consult with people who make these types of decisions. And, um, and if you, especially if you're in the habit of looking for loopholes, uh, not paying people what you said you're going to pay people or not doing for them what you said you were going to do. He says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And these people, they didn't do anything illegal. They, were, they had taken legal advantage of the less advantage. And his point is simply this. Resource people shouldn't look for loopholes to get by with doing less. Resource people, especially people who claim to follow Jesus, resource people should look for opportunities to do more, to give more, to be more generous. Now, if all there is in this life is this life, then you can just forget all this. If all there is to this life is to accumulate, to get more stuff, to go on some cool vacations, uh, eat where you want to eat and do whatever you want to do, then you just sit right there. And after you die, it's over. You just sit right there. You don't have to worry about a thing about what I'm saying. And if there is nothing more to this life than this life, then you're justified in saying, I don't owe anybody anything because I earned every penny I have. And if, if that's where you are, I get that. But if there is more to this life, then we've got to think differently. James certainly thought there was more to this life. He saw his dead brother come back to life. He would say, of course, of course we're accountable for this. I saw my brother come back to life. We should probably think about this. And and in case you're interested, this is what Jesus said about this. He said, you're not an owner. It's not even your stuff. And at the end of the day, you're a steward of the stuff. You're a manager. And managers are always accountable uh, to the owner. And God owns everything. And so according to what Jesus taught... And this is the flip side of everything. You are to be commended for working hard. I get that. You're to be commended for working hard. You are to be commended for saving money. You are to be commended for being responsible. I know for me, uh, I have more money than I thought I would ever have. And I I don't really have that much money. Uh, But part of why my wife and I, we have a a little bit of money saved up is because we have no financial goals. (laughs) And you find that if you uh, have no financial goals, you'd be surprised how well you exceed those non-existent goals. <laughs> wow, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I had no goals and I, I'm doing really well. But, you know, and Nikki and I are so grateful for the opportunities and the little, little bits of money that we have that we thought we would have. We're grateful that, for this. But it didn't fall out of the sky. And then, like when these buckets get passed around, we aren't in the back right before I come up. I'm like, mm, this is going in my pocket. We're not doing, we're not taking money out of the thing. I mean, when other people were frittering money or making this investment or that investment, we were saving, we were kind of watching our budget. We saved every, puny, uh, every bit of money that we've earned so far. But when I read the Bible, I read that I'm commended for that hard work. We are commended for the time we've, we've tried to save. We're commended for being a good steward of our time and our talents and the treasure that God's given us. Uh, and also everything that God has brought our way. But we also discover this. We are commended for working hard, but we are commanded to be generous. I am commanded to be above average generous. I am commanded to do more 
uh, to do give more because I have received more, even though I've earned it. And even though I'm responsible, it, it all comes down to in light of what God has given me and understanding that God has given me every single gift. He put me in the family I'm in. He hooked me up with a wonderful woman where all this can happen. Uh, and he, we, I live in America at this time and age. Like I don't live in some other country. And at the end of the day, no matter what, my wife and I have accomplished, no matter what we've earned, we are still accountable to our Father in heaven. Why? Because at the end of our lives, we're going to leave it all. It's going to be gone. How much of it are we going to leave behind? 100%. And one day, somebody else is going to have all our stuff, which means it's not really our stuff. And so James is not done. He goes in again. This is where he gets out the paddle and just goes to town. He says in James 5, 5, he says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. He says, you become greedy. You become a victim of the consumption assumption. Have you ever heard that before? The consumption assumption. The consumption assumption, in case you haven't heard of it, is this. If it comes to me, it must be for me. If it comes to me, if it comes to me, it must be for me. And uh, if, if it comes to me, I can do whatever I want with it. And James says, no, 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 no. That's not the way the world works. That's not how it works in God's economy. Just because it came to you doesn't mean it's for you. And this next part I'm going to read, uh, it might, it'll probably go right over our heads. It might not mean a thing for us. It's not going to elicit any emotion in you whatsoever. But when they read this for the first time, when James wrote it and they shipped it off and these people, I don't know if they rolled out a scroll and they're like, here, you gather, I'm going to read it. And they're all gathered around. When he did this, when, when it was read, this was a showstopper. And he did, the reason it's a showstopper is because he doesn't want him to miss this point. Little did you know, the truth is, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter, to which we are all like, what does that mean? It means, it means absolutely nothing. Uh, day of slaughter, slaughter, I don't know what that is. Uh, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. In this day and age, rich people had cattle. And they would pick a calf. And they would put it in its own little private playpen and they would overfeed it and overwater it and they would protect it and then guard it. And eventually they would eat it, but they knew that in the future they were going to have something to celebrate. And so now today when we celebrate something, you just had Thanksgiving, you have Christmas coming up. If you need something like you need it, I don't know what you're going to do for Christmas if you have a Christmas turkey or if you have a Christmas ham or whatever it is you eat on Christmas or if you don't celebrate Christmas, whatever you eat that day, uh, you just go, you order it online, and then a ham arrives on dry ice. Or if you want to be more last minute, you can go to the grocery store and you can pick something up. Uh, if you don't like that one that comes in the mail, you can go get another one. And if some people or people are coming, you can go over and pick up a, a turkey and a ham. You can pick up a whole side of beef and put it in your freezer if you have one. You can just be very last minute in the way you plan for celebrations. But back then, the only things that kept, because there was no refrigeration, was grain and wine. All right. Grain and wine. And if you were rich enough and you had some cattle, then you could preserve some of those cattle and you could have some meat. And so consequently, the people in this time had to think way ahead before they were going to celebrate something. So this is really interesting. James is doing something very special with this illustration. It's as if he's saying, look, you rich people, 
You think you're so smart. You think you're planning way, way ahead for a celebration. But really, you are planning for your own embarrassment. You are planning on fattening up the calf, thinking that you're going to have something to celebrate. And really, the calf is going to be great and it's something going to be good. You're going to eat all that. But you have fattened up yourselves for the slaughter. You think that all you've accumulated and hoarded is going to be a celebration in the end. But really, it's going to be for your own embarrassment. And when they read this in the room or wherever they read it, they were probably shell-shocked. Nobody talked this way to rich people before. And James is just going after it, saying, look, you have, you have gone off track on this. Now, James was martyred. That means he was killed in the year 62. And he was illegally killed by the high priest at that time. So there was a transition. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the, the Roman uh, Empire was over Israel at this time. And there's a transition from two Roman governors. And in between this transition, the priest, the high priest, took it upon himself to rid himself of this pain in the neck named James. Because James wouldn't shut up about how his brother came back to life. So he's like, I'm going to take him out of commission. So he's martyred in 62, year 62. We're in year 2018. He was martyred in 62. And it's actually, this is not even recorded in the Bible. This is actually recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus, who, who laid it all out. And, um, but here's the fascinating thing about this. Seven years after this, seven years, all the rich people in Jerusalem found themselves trapped in the city, and they were surrounded by the Roman army. And eventually, they were all starved. They died of disease. Many of them were murdered by other Jews in the city because there was mob conflict happening in the city or they were enslaved. And eventually, every single one of them was expelled or dispatched. And get this, all of their wealth, all of their stuff, everything they had collected, it was put in big carts and it was shipped off to Rome. Those with the most to lose, lose the most. Now, Back in, before 62, when James wrote this down, did he know this was going to happen? I don't know. Jesus actually predicted that this would happen. But he didn't, Jesus didn't give us a date. I don't know if James knew historically the circumstances around what was going to happen to rich Jewish believers in Jerusalem. But James knew that ultimately what would happen to them is the thing that will happen to each of us. One day, our lives are going to be over. And what we did with our stuff will say as much about us as anything. And so the moral of the story is this. Give while the giving's good. Give while the giving's good. Or you can use James's version. You better start giving while you're living because what you're holding is molding. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and, what I cling to, and, and, you know, and what I cling to now might be a source of embarrassment later. Now, I'm going to let all of you sort that out personally. I don't know what you think about God. I don't know what you think about Jesus. I don't know if you care about James. And some of you are exploring faith. Some of you are like diehard Jesus followers. That's great. And some of you are like, good God, how much longer is he going to talk? I get that. I get that. But here's the thing. You will have to give an account to what you've been given, around what you've been given and what you've done with it. And you're going to have to deal with what James has said here. But in the meantime... In the meantime, we as a church are inviting you to take action corporately. 
And remember how we started this talk today. I read this verse to you about being rich. Let me read it again. It says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in love, and to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and be willing to share. In this Christmas season, we have an opportunity to be rich in good deeds and to be generous. Now, let me clarify. Now, if you, ever, this, you consider this your church home and you give tithes and offerings, we want you to continue to do that. This is not, this is not like you're, you're moving you know, the, the shells around it and everything, but this is above and beyond generosity here. And here's a few examples of what we're doing. Um, in the past few weeks, I just need, I'm going to talk about what we're going to do, but I just want to let you know what, what's happened in the past few weeks, like the last two weeks. Uh, uh, imagine L.A., uh, last weekend, we had our very own Brianna Mandel. She was here. Let's give it up for Brianna. Yes, she's over there. You don't know how to look. Um, she's like, please don't, Chris. And so last Sunday, we had the opportunity to help families in need. And what we did is we had this little Christmas tree, and we had these little individual Christmas gifts that people could sign up for. And we helped, like, a bunch of kids get Christmas presents who wouldn't normally have Christmas presents. And so we, we gave away hundreds of, hundreds of dollars to children in need this Christmas. And so that, you know, that, that was from you guys. So thank you for your generosity. That was awesome. Uh, and then also uh, uh, the, the great one himself, I don't even know if he's here, uh, Kevin Glover, actually organized us a few weeks ago where we put together hundreds of dollars worth of stuff that we gave for victims of the Woosley Fire. And so food, blankets, and other things, uh, and stuff that people needed after the fire. So these are a few things that we've done in the past few weeks. Here's some of the things that we're doing moving forward. Um, up, the, uh, coming up, we're going to be working with this place called the Upward Bound House. We're, we're, we're actually in the middle of talks with the partnership with them. We, it's a fantastic organization. It has a great reputation in Los Angeles and in Santa Monica, and they exist to eliminate homelessness among families who are living in L.A., uh, by performing, they provide housing, they provide certain kinds of supportive services and advocacy. And so our community groups are going to come alongside of them and we're going to be giving some financial resources as needed around particular projects. That's something we believe in as a church. Another thing that we're doing is Team World Vision. Patrick Vukovic, he's organizing, he's organizing runners and walkers for the half and full marathon. Why? Because we want to provide, we want to build a well and provide clean water to some folks in the different parts of the country. And then also, we are actually in active talks with Charity Water. Now, Charity Water is super interesting because 100% of your gift actually goes to building wells in parts of the world where people don't have clean waters. And most of the diseases and problems we see with people around the world are due to not having clean drinking water. And so we think that this is a great opportunity not only for our church to jump in, but it's a great opportunity for people in Santa Monica, in West LA, and in Los Angeles to jump in with us. Why? Because I don't think you need to be a Jesus follower to care about clean water in Africa. Like, you can just be another person. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let's do this together. So we're, we're moving towards some things that we think are going to be exciting. We have some projects that are on the docket. And so the point is, we're, we're doing these projects, and we're doing a little bit more. And so whether you join up with one of our projects or you choose to be generous on your elsewhere, we are encouraging you to be generous because it's what Christians do. And since we're coming up on the Christmas, Christmas season, I think it's important to talk about. And next week, we're going to be in our Christmas series, and there's going to be other people here and guests. And, and so I just want to get this talk out of the way, just present it to you before everyone gets here. And um, the thing is this, and if you're a Christian, you get this. 
You know this. Jesus was so clear about this. He said, your devotion to God, the devotion to the God that you cannot see, your devotion to God is best demonstrated and most authenticated through your love of the people you can see. And as a Christian, extravagant, over-the-top generosity is appropriate. It's what we do. And it's the perfect response uh, to God and his extravagant generosity towards us. And so don't miss this opportunity this Christmas this season. You've, we have an opportunity to be generous with the people we know and love, but to be generous in our community, uh, in our city, in our world. We have an opportunity. So that's the deal. Let's, let's be rich. Let's give. Let's serve. Let's love and let's show our communities that religion isn't just a bunch of songs and sermons, but really let's demonstrate the generosity and compassion is from our Father in heaven, and he loves us so much and he calls us to it. That's all I had to share with you. Will you stand with me, please?